I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. When I was a first year teacher, freshman theology, I had a student come in on the first day of school. So my first year, his first day of high school, together we're figuring out what it means to be in this particular school community. And he walked into my freshman theology classroom carrying a Richard Dawkins book. He sat down in the front row and he started reading it. And then a couple of days later, he came in with a Christopher Hitchens book. And then one day when he had to take a quiz on the story of creation and the Bible, he wrote some pretty vulgar things in all of the fill-in-the-blank answers, basically saying that the Bible was made up and that anybody who believes in Christianity or a creator in general is a crazy person. It was not an easy way to begin my teaching career. And if I could go back, what was now years and years ago, and have a conversation with that student again, I would totally change the way I approached trying to not just convince him of the creation and the creator having a part in that creation, and not just try to convince him of God's existence by using, say, Thomas Aquinas or any other series of explanations that have been used for centuries and centuries, I'd probably use the curriculum written by today's guest on the podcast, Dr. Christopher Baglow, who has developed over the years a unique approach to how to explain the relationship between faith and science and how to incorporate faith and science into a curriculum. Not just because we're trying to convince a bunch of believers that science is good or try to convince a bunch of scientists that God is real, but because together faith and science work towards answering the questions of existence. Dr. Chris Baglow joins me today to really dig into how to have those conversations and why it's fruitful to have those conversations, especially when it comes to matters of creation and trying to answer the two big questions that he proposes faith and science are attempting to answer, science trying to answer how, and Christianity and faith trying to answer why. And that together, asking how and asking why and searching for the answers, hand-in-hand, faith and science can lead us to the truth. This conversation is, of course, part of our entire Ave Explorer series on faith and science. You can find all of that content available over at AveMariaPress.com. This conversation today, I think, is one that's really enlightening. And Dr. Baglow's work, both his forthcoming book with Ave Maria Press and all of the great things he writes for the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, are uniquely helpful and insightful and things that are engaging and useful for anyone, whether in or out of the classroom. I particularly was fond of the part of our conversation where we really dig into the role that Pope John Paul II and his writings have had in Dr. Baglow's own journey of faith and in his own professional and scholarly work. I think it just goes to show that these conversations we're having with experts are about more than just the topic, but really ultimately about their stories of faith and how faith and science work together in their own lives. I would encourage you to click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find all the other great things that we are creating just for you in this Ave Explorers Faith and Science series. But for now, I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Baglow. Well, Dr. Baglow, thanks for joining us on Ave Explorers. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I always start our podcast off basically the same way. If we found ourselves on an elevator in Getty's Hall and the elevator broke down and then we were stuck together for a few minutes, who would I be stuck with? What would I have learned about you by the time that elevator starts moving again? Well, I probably would bore you a great deal because I'd start (laughs) talking about Louisiana somewhere in the first or second paragraph. 
because that's where I'm from. And that's the place that I love the home where I was born and where my wife was born and where we've raised our children until we moved to the place where Gettys Hall is located up here in, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So you would hear about that for sure. And after 20 years of academic career, I tend to avoid beginning to sort of throw heavy hitters and start talking about that kind of thing, unless someone asks me. So, so I think you'd be safe and you'd probably be completing my sentences for me because you're from Louisiana too. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We are both natives and you have made your way yes. up to the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Tell us a little bit about your work that you do. I mean, I would be interested once we passed over the, we're not going to get into the heavy right. hitters just yet. Once I got your crawfish boil recipe, then yes. you know you got mine, then we can move on to the other less <laughs> Definitely. important things, like my work. Yeah, yes. no. So I'm the director of the Science and Religion Initiative at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. It's one of a number of centers and initiatives that we have. And the work that we do is focused on helping Catholic educators, but then also all Catholics for that matter, and anyone who cares to listen, about how to integrate Catholic faith and modern science in our understanding and in our proclamation of the gospel and in the new evangelization. So that's what I do. And it's largely focused on Catholic high school science and religion teachers, thanks to a grant from the John Templeton Foundation, one of actually three that we've received. That's the funding that we have. So that's the audience that we work with. Can I ask why? I mean, you were working at a seminary when I first met you, and then this just kind of became a passion project. Was it what you always wanted to do? Was it always in the back of your mind that you wanted to really revolutionize this conversation in this space? Like, how did you get up to that point? No, I owe that to a very wonderful priest who, in 2005, while I was a Hurricane Katrina refugee, reached out to me. He didn't even know I was evacuated at the time and asked me if I would consider writing a proposal to create a curriculum for their senior high religion program at McGill Tulin Catholic High School. The yeah. priest's name was Father Brian Shields. He's still the president there. And Father Shields, they had just finished a capital campaign, and they were about to build a brand new science center at the school. And he thought to himself that they ought to give some consideration to the relationship between faith and science in their religion courses, because mm-hmm. as they increase the quality of science education, there would also be, and this was brilliant, really a genius insight and pastoral mind, that there would be questions about how this relates to the faith, how it relates to what they were learning in their religion classes. Mm -hmm. Now, I had never, ever given any thought to such a project Hmm. at that particular point. But at the time, I was in Bunky, Louisiana, My house was flooded. I was wondering (laughs) when I would be returning to my college or whether or not the college where I was working at the time, Our Lady of Holy Cross College in New Orleans, whether or not it would ever open again. And so I said yes, just because I wondered what I would be doing with myself if, in fact, any of those things happened. Mm -hmm. And so I started working on that curriculum. And over the next two years, was researching it and writing it and falling in love with what I do now. It was just one wonderful surprise after another that I began to discover as I started working on this about Mm -hmm. how open the church is and has historically been to the sciences and how being able to see that would hopefully be a way to overcome the overwhelming assumption of conflict between Mm -hmm. modern science and the Catholic faith that exists for so many. Yeah, I like that story that it it started 
practically. I mean, there was a priest who said, we need to teach our kids this. I'm curious about this conflict because we know the conflict exists. It's been a huge part of the conversation for this entire series. I've been trying to get to the heart of why. I mean, is it because people want reasonable explanations and they don't want any sense of wonder and awe? And the conflict, I think it goes both ways. It comes from the scientific, almost the atheist perspective, and it comes from the religious perspective of we can never play nice. We're not in the same playground. When in reality, like we are, we might just be kind of in separate sections from time to time, but we can share the same equipment. Why do you think that conflict is there at the root of it? Well, actually, there are clear and definite historical causes for that. Mm -hmm. Late 19th century United States anti-Catholicism is at the heart of it. A lot of the myths surrounding, or really lies surrounding that float around in people's minds about the relationship between faith and science come from two writers, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White, both of whom wrote books in which they claimed that faith and science were intractably opposed to each other mm. and that religion would be better off once we stopped trying to think about things and just go to church on Sundays and leave the thinking to the scientists. Mm. And so people's misconceptions about the Galileo affair. Mm-hmm people's misconceptions about even about Columbus having to convince priests and professors in Spain that the earth was not flat. All of those things come from these two authors and have been popularized throughout the last, I guess now, century and a half. Mm -hmm. And so what's the fight back? I mean, it's not just a matter of, okay, well, don't believe those guys. Like, what are some of your starting points, both in that curriculum, but even in helping teachers and educators? I don't want you to give away the whole thing, of course, but what are some of those oh, no, no, no. Yeah. openings? Absolutely. So one of the things, whenever I speak about faith and science, I always try to help my listeners distinguish between faith and science as two different ways of understanding the world, the universe, mm-hmm. reality. Mm-hmm. Science, to put it simply, science takes things apart to show us how they work. Mm-hmm. Religion brings things together to show us what they mean. Science answers how questions. Religion answers why questions. Why is there a world at all? Why did God create it? Mm-hmm. What is his purpose for it? And above all, for his human creatures within it. Those are the kind of differences that, first, just to help distinguish the two, people oftentimes are quick to get it. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, right? I'll ask, you know, when you went to Mass last Sunday, how did you get there? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and they'll tell me they walked or they drove or they rode their bike or whatever it might be. Okay, I said, why did you go to Mass last Sunday? Notice that those are two very different questions. They're not the same kind of answers. Mm-hmm. But they both are helpful answers and they both are true. Mm-hmm. So that's one way in which I begin to help make that distinction. Yeah. And that's a good entry point because it is such a a low pressure way of saying, like, we're trying to arrive at reasons how and why are both necessary. What happens when the rapid fire big questions begin? Especially like I'm thinking of the teacher. I was that teacher in a freshman theology class with a student who was, okay, well, as a Catholic, you can't believe in evolution. Or as a Catholic, the Big Bang Theory makes no sense. And then you're quietly chuckling and saying, actually, it was a Catholic priest that started thinking about all those kinds of things. (laughs) Let's go rapid fire for a second. Okay. Evolution and Catholics. What can we think? What do we think? How do Catholics reconcile this conversation around evolution? Well, let's go back to the first principle that I talked about before. Evolution tells us how Mm -hmm. the life forms that we see 
developed and diversified. But theology, faith tells us why they exist at all, right? Mm -hmm. Why there is a universe. And so consequently, and what God's plan is for life and above all for human life. Then you have to go after the little questions that come up from that. The whole idea, for instance, that evolution has revealed that the universe is simply blind chance. But it doesn't actually do that at all. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of chance itself is a matter of perspective. Mm -hmm. If you and I were playing poker and the cards were adequately shuffled, but I happen to have memorized them all beforehand, I would know exactly what hand you would get. What would seem chance to you would not seem at all chance to me. Mm -hmm. Evolution is not chance to God who knows all things mm -hmm. and uses evolution as the way in which he brings about the diversity of creatures that he wills to exist. Yeah. Um, this is why John Paul II said in, and this was in 19, October of 1986, he said, for the doctrine of the faith, evolution poses no difficulties. Mm -hmm. He didn't say it poses some difficulties or it poses very few difficulties. He said no difficulties mm -hmm. because God and creatures are not in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. God causes all things to be and to be causes of each other in their own ways. Mm -hmm. And this is something that was taught clearly and thoroughly by St. Thomas Aquinas centuries ago before anybody knew about a process called evolution. Yeah. I always remember hearing, you know, Gregor Mendel. It's a huge part of why we can even have those evolutionary conversations. He was, of course, a priest. The church has been an advocate and a proponent of scientific studies. I mean, supporting it monetarily. Right. There's a Vatican observatory. I mean, how has the church really been historically not just a funder of scientific research, but a, a big supporter of it. Well, I would focus on the theological reasons why. It's not just that the church promotes learning. It's that the church sees that through science, we are exploring the marvelous handiwork of the creator. Mm -hmm. And she has confidence that in coming to understand the world, by reflection, we can come to understand God better. John Paul II put that in a beautiful and memorable way in a letter that he wrote to the director of the Vatican Observatory back in 1988. He said, science can purify religion from error and superstition, and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Mm. And then he went on. He said, each can draw the other into a wider world where both may flourish. Now, think about that saying. That's an openness in which somehow sciences will help us deepen our understanding of the Catholic faith. And also at the same time, a confidence mm -hmm. that the truths that God has revealed, right, are not just there to be supplanted by scientific research, not only because they're of a different kind, but because they're certain, because God does not deceive. You yeah. keep bringing up JP2, and I do want to hear that part of your story. I mean, why is this sure. factor into your story and your love of this subject? Well, I loved John Paul II long before I loved the relationship between faith and science. And in April of 2005, just a few months before Hurricane Katrina, John Paul II passed away. Mm -hmm. And Pope Benedict became Pope. And in October of 2005, when I was trying to figure out where I would begin making my way through mountains of books and as I was trying to understand how to research this curriculum, I made the acquaintance of a Catholic priest, Father Jim Sostius, the editor-in-chief of Midwest Theological Forum. He ultimately would publish the curriculum as a textbook in 2009, and the second edition just came out in 2019. Mm -hmm. But 
when I talked to him, he asked me if I was familiar with John Paul II's discourses about faith and science, the things that he had written and the things that he had proclaimed as Pope. And I told him, well, you know, I know that he said in 95, he said that, you know, evolution is more than a hypothesis. And he says, well, there's more. And he Mm -hmm. sent me a zip drive that had 144 addresses in them. And so one of the first things I started to do was to go through those in chronological order, starting in 1979 with the first address he made to the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences, Mm -hmm. all the way up through the last one, which was in November of 2004, just months before he passed away. And that for me was revelatory, to put it mildly, Mm -hmm. because what I saw was in John Paul II was a leader who saw that this relationship between faith and science was a new way in which the gospel could be proclaimed mm-hmm. and that it should not be an area of uh, suspicion or timidity on the part of Catholics. It should be a new mission field. Let's think about it. Yeah. Everybody knows something about science these days. We live in the most right. scientifically literate culture in the history of the world. Kids watch Discovery Channel. They watch Animal Planet. Mm -hmm. They learn about evolution long before it occurs to them to ask the question, how does this relate to what I'm hearing in church about God Mm -hmm. being creator of all things? But sooner or later, they will ask those questions. And if we can't show them the faith proclaimed in relationship to these things, they will always feel like they have to choose. Yeah. They'll always feel like it'll be, Mm -hmm. well, I can be scientific, but if I am, I won't be religious. And if I'm religious, I won't be scientific. Mm-hmm. And which one is right? Because they misunderstand what each one is, rather, at least on the faith side, I think, misunderstand what the church is really saying. Yeah. I keep thinking about, you know, my husband's a biology teacher, and, and he's always lamenting how STEM has taken over. And not in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, science and technological education, mathematics, like this is important stuff, engineering, mathematics, what right. it stands for but that he wants more than his students just being able to talk about the Krebs cycle or to go through what, you know, this is what evolution has looked like over the course of the years. He wants them to be able to articulate. And I think theology, even just a concept of faith really opens the door to being able to have that bigger conversation. I mean, it's, we could dig into the reason that the liberal arts can make room for the both of them, but I think the church is really at the forefront of this. I want to ask about kind of a, a hot button issue or a a hot take, which I'm not asking you to give, but to really unpack it, one of the questions that I had a student ask many, many times was, well, if we can believe in evolution or if there is no conflict, as JP2 has told us, well, then how can I make sense of one man and one woman were created in God's image and likeness at the beginning of time? And then, you know, jokingly, a 14-year-old boy goes, how am I then not related to every human being on the face of the planet? I mean, that's a bigger issue. How do you start to unpack that? How do you start to explain it? What are some language points that we can bring up, or even some documents that folks can go dig into to learn more about that subject? Sure. Well, in my forthcoming book with Avi Maria Press, I actually have a a whole chapter entitled, A Couple in a Cave, Adam, Eve, and the Origins of Humanity, in which I talk precisely about what evolutionary scientists and geneticists have revealed about human origins, Mm -hmm. and also how we might begin to think about important doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the unity of the human family and also the dogma of original sin, the idea that all human beings have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that we need salvation, right? And so I talk about that there, and I'll put it in a nutshell for you. 
although there is a lot of concern about retaining one man and one woman at the beginning of the human race, that's kind of a misunderstanding of what the church is teaching. Mm-hmm. What the church has assumed for a long time was that there was one man and one woman at the beginning of the human race, right? And so consequently, taught about original sin based on that assumption, mm-hmm. much like the assumption that the sun revolves around the earth rather than vice versa. Mm-hmm. But just like in, in the time after Galileo, when it was demonstrated that, in fact, his hypothesis was right, and the church was able to see how we can now begin to understand better what scripture is saying here. We can also realize that although there may have been a community at the beginning of the human race, we are still all one human family. As one genetic study said, we are more closely related to every human being on earth. There's more genetic variation in a tribe of West African chimpanzees that have been Mm. studied than there is in the human race. We are Mm. one family. Mm -hmm. All of us are human. And the genetic data is irrefutable on that. But at the same time, the idea that the breakthrough to what makes us fully and uniquely human and in the image of God, the ability to reason, the ability to freedom happened within a community. And that perhaps because of perhaps one or two, but then ultimately the others, right, are drawn into what Pope Benedict called relational damage, a world marked by sinfulness and curving in on oneself, that that's not a problem Mm. because we end up with the same situation. We need Jesus. Yeah. So anyway, so that's how I would answer that particular question. It's an important one because we now know because of the rates of genetic change and the variety and the way evolution works and just the genetic diversity we see in our species today, that there had to have been a population at the beginning of the human race. We don't need to be afraid of that. What we need to realize is, is that just as sin can be quickly something that a community participates in, Mm-hmm. Right, because of our highly social and highly cohesive species, the same could be true at the beginning as we see later. Yeah. I think people shy away from it because we almost, even though we're not supposed to, we read things in a very literalistic way and we take comfort in. I mean, I'm thinking of my own, you know, like my own sensibilities. You're like, well, wait a second, but this is how I've always been taught. And it's supposed to be this magnificent mystery. But the mystery of my religion is it's okay if science begins to reveal some of the particulars of that. It doesn't make the mystery less valuable. If anything else, it just kind of expands my wonder and awe at the intelligence of the creator. Right. I I want to go back to the words wonder and awe awe and wonder, because those are very, very important. Before I do, I would say that theology is defined as faith-seeking understanding. Mm -hmm. And so if there's understanding, a truth to be had out there, give it to us. Mm -hmm. In the end, we're not going to find it adverse to what God has revealed. Mm. because there, in the end, there's only one truth, right? Although we can't see it now from our limited perspective, one day we will. And so theology is a journey of understanding that only ends in heaven. Mm. And we should be picking up as much truth as we can as we make our way along. And awe and wonder, I think, is very important here too, because it is precisely in science that so many people experience a sense of awe and wonder. And that is akin to the deepest sort of religious experience, right? I mean, if we think about any of the mystics of the church, they experience awe and wonder. Bringing them together can be a way in which both can flourish, as John Paul II said. Yeah. 
I mean, it's the faith and reason are two wings upon which we can fly. It's a dumbed down version of the sentence. But so I guess my last question here at the end, you know, you you are a man of faith who is studying this, who is teaching this, who is helping other people learn how to teach it. You've written a textbook on it, quite literally. You've you mentioned Midwest (laughs) Theological Forum. I literally use the Didache series as the prop for my computer stand because I you know there's (laughs) like hefty books. And I remember that one in our school, it was circulating in our theology department, yours. Why would a non-teacher, why is this something that I should make room in my brain for and room in my heart for? I'm specifically thinking of some of the different articles that you've written on the McGrath Institute blog about what you just talked about, the wonder and all kind of working through together. But you know, we always try at Ave Explorers to bring in what we're talking about makes us better Catholics every day. How does making space yes. for this in my head make me a better Catholic? Well, okay. So first of all, it would make you a better ambassador of the Catholic faith, for sure, mm. to know more about this. Because so many young people have questions that they don't simply ask their teachers. They ask their grandparents, they ask their parents, right? Mm -hmm. They ask their friends. And so being able to answer those questions is going to be very, very important as we move into the future, which could only mean a deeper and more thorough scientific literacy in our culture. Also, remember going back to that quote from John Paul II's Fides et Ratio that you mentioned, right? Faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. Contemplation of the truth should always be at the heart of a Christian's priority, whatever that truth might be. It was precisely that, that understanding that all truth points to God, that brought about the medieval universities, the place where people would come together from all over, the best scholars in all various disciplines to begin to think about these questions together. And science was always represented in those. That doesn't mean that everybody has to become a scientist. I'll never become a scientist. I work with scientists, and a lot of my ability to do what I do relies on the fact that I talk to Catholic scientists who know about these things and learn from them the science so that I don't misrepresent it. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be a reason. And that's why I wrote the forthcoming book from Ave Maria Press called Creation, a Catholic's Guide to God in the Universe. It was very, very fun for me because it was a way of taking what had in the past been in a textbook and making it accessible, humorous, adding personal anecdotes. I always enjoyed writing, I found writing fulfilling, but I never thought it could be as much fun as it was as I was <laughs> writing that one. So yeah. just a short way of hitting those major questions and helping Catholics come to understand how science can deepen their awe and wonder, not only at the universe God created, but at God himself. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end kind of teasing that book. When does it come out, Dr. Baglow? In the fall sometime. So maybe late summer, early fall, they're saying. We'll put the pre-order link down in the show notes. I saw the cover just the other day because it's part of the McGrath Institute series. There's one on the Eucharist. There's one on prayer. Thanks so much for taking the time and, and say hello to the family for me. Absolutely. Thank you, Katie. It was a pleasure. You know, faith tries to answer why and science tries to answer how. And together we can get to an understanding of the truth. And I, I think it's really interesting how Dr. Bagelow presents this as not opposed faith and science, as not competing, but as working towards the truth, as trying to get to an understanding of what is good and true and, and beautiful. 
Ave Explorer's Faith and Science is really digging into this topic, and I'd encourage you to click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find all of the things that we're creating, articles, video conversations, other podcasts, social media exclusives, things to really dive into this topic and try to help us explore and understand what it means to pursue an understanding of science while living our faith and what it means to be a person of faith who is, of course, not opposed to science. So click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find everything. We'd, of course, be grateful if you would give a rating and a review to this podcast, share it with your friends even, so that more folks can find what we're creating just for you. We've got another conversation later this week with a geologist unpacking the age of the world and what it means to feel very small while standing next to very old rocks. That's, of course, a very simplified explanation. We hope you stick around and find that episode later this week. As always, thanks for listening. Click on over to AveMariaPress.com to find more in our Ave Explorers Faith and Science series. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.